0: Oh, okay, good. <clears throat> Sorry about that. Can't help but sing that song or listen to the song and think about uh, Revelation 4 and 5 in that mag- magnificent passage there, which speaks of worthy as the lamb. And also, every time I sing that song, I'm brought back to walking down Darlinghurst in Sydney, down to the rocks and looking over Darling Harbour. The song there, The Darling of Heaven. Doesn't mean my sweetheart in heaven. It's an Australian term meaning the very best. Darlinghurst, Darling Harbor, the best harbor. And it is a beautiful harbor. The Darling of Heaven, the very best of heaven, crucified. On the screen there, down below, sometimes I've, I've used this in the past, or you've used it in the past, I still do. But if you have any thoughts or questions uh, that you would like to communicate with me during the week, and it doesn't have to be on the sermon, but if it is, I've been helped a lot by your input over the years, that uh, Yahoo um, email address, sermonthoughts, at yahoo.com, you can send those to me. Uh, I received several texts, some notes uh, this uh, week that were very encouraging and very helpful uh, as I prepared for this lesson. We're going to look at Romans chapter 8 and verses 3 and 4, and so let's just read that together, and you'll see why I entitled this, God Did It. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by this sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the spirit, sinful nature, but according to the spirit. And if you're like me, as I read that in the, in the previous weeks and this week. I thought, that's, that's a... That's a not a mouthful that's a mindful (laughs) that 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 there's a lot there that just brings up a lot of questions in my mind and so the lesson today I think is going to be inadequate to really bring out these this passage and I don't plan on spending any more time than this lesson even though I could there's there's so much in there and so I just encourage you and your study and your thoughts to consider this passage, and I, I know several have been readings. Uh, I've had several, uh, uh, several, two or three, who have said they've been reading through Romans 8, and trying to do it each day, and so I want to encourage you to do the same, and, and to, even if you don't read the whole chapter, just read part of it, and think about what you're reading as, as you go through that. I want to tell you about my grandson, Hayden. Hayden's 12 years old right now, I can hardly believe it. This is when he was three or four years old. And we had a VBS evening, if I remember right. It's been, whatever, years ago, eight years, seven years ago. We had an evening of a vacation Bible school. And the theme was around Exodus, the Exodus. And one thing I remember, our creative teachers uh, in, in this elementary department They had the Red Sea in the hall. Maybe some of you remember that. The Red Sea was in the hall, and the children walked through the Red Sea, and they went from station to station uh, experiencing the children were the children of Israel. And they were going from, from different story to different story of Exodus. Hayden was ushered into the room with his group of children of Israel to the story where Moses comes before Pharaoh, and he says, "Let my people go." And there's a series of "Let my people go," and and uh, Pharaoh being played by Macky Shed, a very good, you know, uh, connection there. He stood there. Those who know Mackie can laugh at that. You can show him this. He knows I'm teasing. He stood there, very firm, very you know, uh, strong with his robe on, and every time Moses would call to let my people go, he would refuse. No, I'm not going to do that. And there was, you know, I think the plagues were taking place, and so he kept refusing. And Hayden, as a four-year-old, five-year-old, was just so wrapped up in this. And one of the times, Mackie came to me later just laughing. He said, oh, I really wish this was on video. But he said, at one point when the tension was building, and Mackie just refused, he said, no, I will not let the children of Israel go Hayden just stood up and lifted his arms and he said but I just want to be free <laughs> and don't we always don't we all just want to be free I want to be free and so as we go through this passage this, this section of Romans Freedom, as I showed, I think in my first lesson, was uh, uh, is heavenly, heavily, heavenly. Yes, heavenly, and heavily emphasized, especially in chapters five, six, seven, and eight. And if you read through those chapters, you see there's this free from wrath in chapter five. We spent several lessons in chapter six. We're free from sin. We're free from the power of sin. We're free from the authority. All these means we're free from being under the authority of the law in chapter 7. And now we're in chapter 8. We're free from death. Free from wrath, sin, law, and death. And we saw in chapter 8, verse 2 last week, that this law, or it's a power principle. I don't know how to explain that. Maybe you can email me and tell me the better way to explain this. Power It's not a list of rules. But it's a power, it's a principle of the spirit of life sets us free from the law, the power of sin and death. It's interesting that this verse in verse 2 where it says it set you free and some of your translations may say set me free. It's in the singular. And most of the time, if you read through the scriptures and it says, I'm telling you to do this and you to do this, it's, it's in the plural. It's saying, I'm telling the church, I'm telling all of you to do this. But in this particular verse, it's in the singular. And I think what it's saying there, he's saying, you have personal freedom in Christ and you, you have personal responsibility tied to that freedom. And chapter 8 is going to explain more of what all that means, that our, our side and what we're responsible for. As much as we desire freedom, even though we cry, I want freedom, even though that's our heart's cry, I really believe that we're more comfortable in the security, quotes, of being told what to do we're more comfortable because we've grown up in it in the it's not the security we're more comfortable in the zone in the sphere in the dimension of wrath and sin and law and death we cry for freedom but when we cross over we don't know how to handle it. We don't know how to live that way. And so Romans 8 is going to teach us how to live. Part of Romans 8 is going to teach us how to live in that freedom. Over in, the, in Exodus, the Israelites had stood before God, had stood before Pharaoh, Were, were the, the ten plagues. They saw the ten plagues. When they were leaving Egypt, most, a lot of people don't know this, they were told, go and ask Egyptians for gold and silver and animals, and they'll give it to you. And so they left wealthy. They, you know, how was the, temp- the tabernacle built with all the gold and all that? It was given to them by the Egyptians. How did they build the golden calf later on from the Egyptians' gold? And so they left with, and that's miraculous too in a sense where God said, ask and they'll, just, they'll load you down, and they did. And they get out to the Red Sea and they're trapped and God performs a couple of miracles there. He keeps the Egyptians away with a miracle and he opens up the Red Sea and they go through the Red Sea and they go to the other side. They see all these wonderful things and now they're truly free. They're on the other side of the Red Sea. And if I understand, if, if I read Exodus correctly, and it's a possibility I'm reading it wrong, but if I read it correctly, three Days, three days after they had crossed the Red Sea, they're complaining of no water. Three days. And six weeks later, they said this, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Israel. In Israel? In Egypt, excuse me. If only God had killed us in Egypt. And here's the reason. There we sat around pots of meat. We ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve. This entire assembly to death. Six weeks. They didn't know how to live in freedom. They didn't know how to live before God. They kept trying to go back to Egypt. 1 Corinthians 10. I believe Robert either last week or the week before. My memory. I'm not sure exactly. He talked about 1 Corinthians 10 the shadow of uh, the Red Sea and crossing through the Red Sea and is, is, uh, is a shadow of our baptism of, as we move to this new dimension, relieving the slavery of sin and entering into this new walk in freedom in Christ. And it's hard to live in freedom because we're so used to living under, t- under the tyranny of sin and law and death and learning how what what does it mean to live in freedom what are we to do how are we to act how are we to think and that's really where it starts is in our minds how we how we think is going to affect how we act you see you can take the slave out of Egypt but here's the question can you take the can you take Egypt out of the slave it's harder to do that up here than down there But that's really the question yeah you can take the slave out of Egypt but can you take the Egypt out of the slave and in the new grace that we live in in this new covenant relationship God says yes you can do that not only can you be taken out of slavery but the slavery can be taken out of you and so he says there in Romans chapter 8 verse 1 and 2 that we covered last week Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Because in Christ Jesus, or through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. It shows us how, this this whole chapter is going to show us, this is how you live in freedom. question that comes to my mind then is, how safe is the Christian? How safe are we in regard to where we are in Christ, our position in Christ... And the place, not only the place, but our eternal security, our, you know, how secure are we as we struggle in this life? Because go back to 725b, the last part, in my mind, I'm a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, I'm a slave to, uh, in, in my f- flesh or my sinful nature, I'm a slave to the law of sin. I struggle with this, but this, this uh, knowing in my mind how to live, but in my life, putting it into practice. So how do I how do I deal with, with all that? How secure am I? There's a teaching that's summed up this way. It goes, I guess it's a phrase, once saved, always saved. Okay, once you're once you're saved, you're, you can never be lost. And but we in our observation of life, we see people who come into fellowship, they come into Christ, they're they come into uh, the body of Christ, they're saved. And then they leave, so we see in our personal experience I'm, I'm not sure about that. And so the answer usually to that, if you think once they are always save is well they were never saved, all right so they just kind of dismisses it. But then even the scripture talks about the warnings of falling away and living the way you know of unbelief and things like that, so I can't really you know anchor my belief in that, in that statement, once saved, always saved. And, and no one's ever actually accused me of that, but I have been asked, well, are you saying that people can't be saved? <laughs> or lost, excuse me. People can be saved. Like I said, it's harder up here than down there. <laughs> so what we've done in our fellowship, at least I've heard in the 50s, I wasn't really alive in the 50s that much. But I did see it in the late 60s, and when I started being aware of the world in the 70s, that there was such a strong teaching against that teaching of once saved, always saved, that we walked away from that once saved, barely saved. Maybe you experienced that, that like, I just don't know. This teaching is telling me that I've got to be really, really careful what I do because. I'm barely saved. I've got to keep, you know, hanging on. I'm going to read part of a a, a note card I got last week. And I haven't marked up exactly where I'm going to read this. But she says, I was brought up up in a denomination. And then she said, later, I recognized that this this church that I was brought up in that I had left seemed so much happier than my fellow Christians in the church. She said, when I was baptized, my first action the next day was to tell my neighbor about it. From my early, reading, my early readings of Scripture, I know that the Spirit was with me, and I, I, I knew that I was a new person. However, as I continued to study and was taught about the commandments, I became disappointed in myself and even depressed. Being an idealistic an idealist with a serious conscience, and having a strong desire to serve God, it took me a long time to see my pride and my failures, that I must totally focus on God's power as I did at the beginning, and that He changes our lives. And that's really what we're going to look at in this lesson today. Biblically, I think it's better to say once saved, securely saved. Once saved, maybe completely saved. Because there is a security in salvation when it rests in what God has done, in His work, in our attention. This is the whole purpose of the Lord's Supper and us gathering together is to focus our attention on God. And what He has done rather than what we do. Our work. And, and when I say that, everyone says, well, well you, don't, you don't think we should do anything. No, we focus on Him while we cooperate with Him. Yes, we are concerned about what we do, but we never keep our eyes off God and Christ and how His direction. So, Romans 8 is going to talk about us cooperating with the Spirit. It's based in Romans 6, 7, really all the way back to chapter 1 where that we recognize that in God, we came to God, and we were immersed into Him. We've been moved to this new dimension. Well, I've been calling the grace dimension, the new life. And even though we struggle with living in, with, our, with our sins and our faults and our inconsistencies right now, we are now free from that power that once ruled us, and now we're free to live under this new power of the spirit of life. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God did it. That's my emphasis today. God did it. That's where we need to keep our focus. This is where we need to be anchored. And that first picture that I showed you was Michael Jordan, if you're too young to know Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan, that picture, I think, was one of his championship wins, maybe one of his first. And you can just see the happiness, the joy In his expression over winning a basketball game. And I was looking at that picture, and I was saying, why aren't we that happy over what God has done for us? And that gave me another grandchild, sorry, story. I'm going to show you a video of a 4-year-old grandson named Jonah playing t-ball a few years ago. Now, do I need to push this button, or you need to push that button? I do? All right, push. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to verbalize what he says in Christ, okay? He's playing picture. He gets, oh, yeah, first time he's ever picked up a ball, and he throws it all the way, and the guy is out. Well, they haven't called him out yet, so Jonah's waiting and looking, and they call him out. Like, yes! Yes! God did it! Yes! Yes, yes, God did it, yes, 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 now I'll go in. Did you see, did you see what God did? Did you see? Give me a high five, there you go. Yes. And what, shouldn't that be our reaction to what God has done? Yes. Yes, yes. And I don't mean we walk around all our life. Jordan doesn't walk around smiling all the time. And Jonah doesn't walk around fist pumping all the time. But shouldn't that be our attitude when we think of what God has done? Yes, yes, yes. Fifteen fist pumps or whatever it was. It didn't count. Yes. God did it. And the law was powerless to help us. That's what the passage says here. The law was powerless to help us. And and this word means impossibly weak. It just couldn't do it. The thing impossible for the law to do. And you go back to chapter 7 and it says, listen, the law is holy. The law is good. The law is righteous. The law is spiritual. I'm not going to read the verses, but just read chapter 7. It says all those things. The law is perfect. It's what, what, what is needed. But the place where it works is... In the flesh, in in humanity, in humankind, in our human personalities that is unholy, not good, unrighteous, unspiritual. You see, the law is like a mirror. We go to the mirror and we look in it and we see our imperfections and we get mad at the mirror. No, you don't get mad at the mirror. You just turn the lights real low (laughs) or you stop looking in the mirror. But that's what the law is. It's like a mirror. It says, look, this is righteous, and this is holy, and this is good, and this is how you should uh, live, and then we look at ourselves, and we see our imperfections, our humanness, our basic nature, and we don't like what we see, and the law shows us exactly how to live and says this is a beautiful way to live. This is a great way to live, and let me just illustrate it this way. Imagine that the whole world for just one day, just one day, the entire world Obey the Ten Commandments, just the Ten Commandments, not anything else, but just the Ten Commandments perfectly for one day. What would this world be like? Can you imagine a a day where everyone honors God, where everyone honors their parents, where marriage and property and life is held up and honored? You live honestly. No one covets. Just, just for one day. What a perfect life. What a perfect existence for that one day. And we all sit here and say, but it can't be done. Somebody's going to break it. Well, the somebody's you. You're going to break it. And this word in verse 3, it says, for the law was powerless to do what it was weakened, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature. For... Says is explaining it tells us how the law of the spirit of life has freed us from the law of sin and death in the previous verse And he tells us this is how it happens You could not under your own power live uh, Right righteous You had to live under the power of the spirit you could not remove you could not remove yourself from sin and death the two things that we so badly want to get rid of in our life, sin and death. We look at our lives and we say, I, I, you know, I just, I, I, I don't want to sin. I wish I could get rid of it. We don't want to die. All right, another grandchild story. Last night, last night I was sitting with Tui. I how old is Tui, seven? I don't know. Big dog, he says. When you die, what are you going to do with your phone? <laughs> he wants my phone in him. <laughs> and I said, to he, Lord willing, I'm going to be around 20, 25 years, and you'll already be old enough to have your own phone by then. So we want to get rid of death. I mean, you know, he, he wasn't really praying for my death, I don't think. Just coveting my phone <laughs> God did it though God did it he says what God did and the words there are not God did it's, it's God himself it's really emphasizing this is God himself who did it that's why it says God did it God did God's work initiated salvation it began salvation it Continue salvation and it completes salvation I don't have time to go to the passage but read Philippians 2 verse 13 and read Jude verse 24 and we see that God continues to work your salvation yes there's stuff you do the previous verse says that but God is the one who is actively involved in your life continuing your salvation and in the end he's going to bring it to completion that's why he talks about being glorified later on in Romans 8 this is something you have something better to look forward to we must forever keep this in the forefront of our thinking. We cooperate with God. We put things off. We put things on. That's right. We grow in the wisdom and knowledge of God. We do all those things. But if we don't remember that it is God who is working in us, it is God's work who is doing this in us, that He initiates salvation, He initiates change, if you don't remember that, you will grow in pride. Instead of God did it, I did it. And when you cross that line, you're in law, you're under sin, you're living the life that you aren't meant to live. God did it. So how did he do this? How, how did God do it? It says he sent, he sent his son. God's love, his grace, and mercy is seen in this a- action. And it's really this is something that you can really think about, is that God is the sender. He's the one that is, he, he, if, if someone is sent, they're representing the sender. Where an ambassador, I, I met the ambassador in Fiji on several occasions, he represents the president, all right? He's representing someone, and so the one who is sent is representing the sender. And this word literally is my sender. God sent my sender. And you see this over and over, especially in John. I want to show you a few passages in John where where Jesus really focused on, I have a sender who has sent me. And we say, oh, we're supposed to imitate Jesus. Okay, apply these that you have been sent also by Christ. All right? Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Literally, my sender. Do, Do the will of my sender and to finish his work. This is, what I'm, this is my focus to do his will and to finish his work. John 5, 23, he who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. So that we have this connection that if you're honoring me, Jesus said, you're honoring the father who sent me, my sender. Same next verse says, I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me, my sender, he has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. What a parallel to Romans chapter 8, 1 and 2. I could just use all this to show Romans 8, verse 1 and 2. We have that eternal life. There is no condemnation. We have gone to the, to the law of the spirit of life. We've been, we've been moved from death to life. By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but my sender, the one who sent me. I am living my life to please my sender. Are we living our lives to please our sender? And then last, and there's several more that we could go to, but John 6, 38, and this is the will of him who sent me. That I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. Again, the focus is this is, I'm, I'm focused on the sender's will. And then he says, he sent him in the likeness of sinful flesh. And that, that causes some people some struggle. But all it means is this it means that he was human, he was flesh, he was flesh and blood like us, yet he was sinless. All right? So he was capable of sin. He was tempted in every way, just like we are. He, he, he didn't have a miraculous um, shield around him that he, he couldn't sin. He was tempted just like we were, but he did not sin. And so he was sinless. So he was in flesh, but in the likeness of sinful flesh. He wasn't sinful. So, and that's where the likeness comes in there. So don't let that throw you off too much. So he was sent... Just like you. He lived just like you. And you say, you know, I really struggle with, name your sin. And Jesus was tempted with that sin too. Tempted in every point, just like us. Yet he kept saying no, because he was so focused on doing God's will. But what did he do? Okay. God did it. kept saying, I wonder how many of you thought, well, what's the it? What did God do? God did it. Okay. Well, what was it? Alright, he did two things, at least in this passage we see two things. First it says he condemned sin, verse 3, for what the law was powerless to do, God did by sending his own son, likeness of sinful flesh, to be a, a sin, and so he condemned sin in sinful man. that confuse you a little bit? It confuses me a little bit. A lot of translations try to make sense of this wording, it's It's difficult. Literally, it says this, and for sin, condemn the sin in the flesh. Now, that clears things up, doesn't it? (laughs) So, the NIV try, in other translations, try to to make sense of it, and it says, to be a sin offering, even though it doesn't actually say that, but it it gives you that direction, to be a sin offering, and so he condemns sin and sinful man. Whatever the translation, whatever the interpretation in your mind We know this. Something had to be condemned. All right? Law was broken, so justice must be served or God is not just. Something had to be condemned. God cannot just say, okay, whatever. We say whatever to sin, don't we? To our own sins a lot of times. Whatever. God does not say whatever. God says for me to be God, to me to be just, then there has to be condemnation. Something has to be condemned. And this condemnation is pronouncing the sentence, saying this is the sentence, and carrying it out. It's not enough just to say you deserve death, but you got to die too. It's got to be carried out. And so God did not condemn you if you're in Christ. But he condemned the sin Placed on Christ. The sentence and the execution of the sin took place in the body of Christ on the cross. How exactly is a mystery? I have to, by faith, I can understand it to a degree. As I study the scriptures and I get My brothers and sisters who share with me, especially from the Old Testament, the shadows that Robert was doing so well, I start seeing a little more, but it's still a mystery, and I believe it because God said it. He said he condemned, and I find it interesting, he didn't condemn Christ, but he condemned sin in the body of Christ on that cross, something to think about, but that's the first thing he did. He condemned sin second thing he did and this blows your mind blows my mind righteousness was fulfilled in you you see a right relationship with God had to take place it wasn't complete with just punishing the sin punishing the sin had to take place condemning the sin had to be had to take place but there had to be a completion there had to be the positive side uh, had to take place Punishment was uh, condemned, but restoration, completion, fullness, life as it was meant to be, that's the goal. That's what God, he says, in order to do this, this is what he was wanting to do, the positive side of this. And here's the unbelievable news. The unbelievable good news is that he says the righteous requirements of the law are fully met, not in Christ, not in this verse. The righteous requirements of the law are fully met in you. If you're in Christ, you meet the standard. You you have risen to the standard of fulfilling the law. Wow, aren't you good? Aren't you that good? No, the whole point, God did it. You see, God did that to you. He said, okay, in faith you come to Christ. I'm going to look at you and say, you're righteous, you're not condemned, you're holy, those in Christ, unbelievable good news, righteous. Two, two things real quickly, I've highlighted the whole sermon in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21, and I've left out some, all right, I just everything would be colored if I did everything, all right? except for the word and or something like that. The yellow is my first point. God did it. The blue is how he did it, through Christ. And the green is what he does in us. This just sums up what we've been saying. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. All this is from God. Who reconciles us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That should be blue or green. No, what color? Green. Sorry. (laughs) That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sin against them. my paraphrase that I tried to expand and helps me to understand this passage better hope it does for you what follows in this situation is this none right now absolutely no verdict of guilt and not one payment meted out in punishment to those in the ever safe confines of Christ Jesus For the power principle of the spirit of life has fully exempted and released you from the liability of living under the burdensome law of a self-centered life that is a daily and forever death sentence. For God's law, holy and perfect as it was, was impossibly weak in that it was working with unholy and imperfect humans. Enter God himself. He sent his son to humankind, real humanity himself, but sinless. Covering all the bases concerning the power of sin over our lives, he pronounced condemnation on sin and carried out the sentence in Christ's body. The whole purpose of this was so that you could stand in the courtroom of justice and by God himself be declared not only acquitted but right with God thus measuring up to the law's perfect standard. This is granted to those who de- whose day-by-day day walk through life is no longer in human self-centered living, but as a day-by-day day life centered in God's Spirit. Let's continue to learn what it means to live in the Spirit. And we'll do that God willing. Thank you.